0: Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Wurrung as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Yarra Libraries Podcast. Andrea Goldsmith has been writing critically acclaimed, award-winning novels for years. You might know her for her Miles Franklin shortlisted The Prosperous Thief, or Melbourne prize-winning The Memory Tree, or her essays from Mianjin, Australian Book Review, and Best Australian Essays. Wherever you first encountered her, we hope you leave this conversation thinking of her as the author of Invented Lives, her most recent novel, which she shared with us at a Carlton After Hours event late last year. In this talk, Andrea Goldsmith takes us through the novel's development from Moscow to characters' careers in 1980s Australia. Exploring the novel's central theme of exile, she opens up about her motivations and her plans for the future. We hope you enjoy. This is an edited recording, with some audience questions revoiced by staff for clarity.
1: Invented Lives opens in 1985 in Leningrad. Gorbachev has been in power for about a year. Things are opening up a little bit. Um, and we meet the main character, Galena Kogan. She is hurrying home from hospital when we meet her. Her beloved mother has prematurely died that day in hospital and um, Galina's life is literally in pieces. There was only the two of them and now her mother is gone. As Soviet Jews, ethnic Jews, they certainly didn't practice as Jews, they um, had requested permission to leave the Soviet Union. Soviet Jews were allowed to leave from the late 1970s to the breakup of the, the Soviet Union. and their plan had been to go to the great paradise that is America. Now, with her mother dead, um, those plans uh, well, they're in pieces, as she's in pieces. It's November, it's cold, she's hurrying home and she quite literally bumps into a man um, whose name is Andrew um, and it, it, she, she's knocked to the ground. The man is an Australian mosaicist who is working in Leningrad um, on the mosaics of an extraordinary church, and anybody who's been to Leningrad, St Petersburg will know this church, it's the Church on the Spilled Blood, which is an extraordinary church with nine domes and the whole of the interior is mosaic. So there's a little exchange and, you know, she, she really is in pieces. She heads on home to the flat that she shared with her mother. She arrives back at the flat. The door opens and she's drawn inside and embraced by well-wishers. Everyone is sad. Everyone needs consolation. But everyone knows a daughter's loss is greater than theirs. More people arrive and soon the flat is jammed with friendly faces and rousing memories. Despite the cold, the door to the balcony is open to draw out the cigarette smoke and the heat of so many bodies. There's plenty of food and several bottles of Georgian wine and no shortage of vodka, despite Gorbachev's absurd prohibitions. Not even Lenin himself would dare separate a Russian from his vodka, Nadia, her mother's best friend, says. People share stories about Lydia. There's laughter as well as sadness, but with the passing hours, it's the laughter that dominates. The night deepens, the food is eaten, the alcohol is drunk. It's close to 11 o'clock when everyone finally leaves. Nadia helps with the tidying up, then makes them some fresh tea. They sit at the table where she, Galena, and her mother have spent so much time, and where Nadia and her mother have spent so much time. But never before has it been just her and Nadia sitting here together. And it occurs to her that it's these small, everyday happenings that will drive home the fact that her life has cruelly and irrevocably changed. Nadia tucks a fresh cigarette between her lips and reaches for Galena's hands. As soon as Lydia is laid to rest, she says, Galina will be going back to work, even early, if she's up to it. Work will help, she says. Work will distract. She takes a deep drag of her cigarette and ash falls to the table. And, Galia, no more talk of emigration. It's better to remain in the country you know, where you yourself are known. And when there's no response, she adds, life must go on, Galinochka, and life here is not so bad, not like it used to be. Nadia continues to talk about the future, but Galina's not listening. She's caught by Nadia's face, a face so familiar she's not really looked at it before. It's as if a hessian sack has been stuck to the skull and neck, leaving holes for the eyes and mouth. This rough, mustardy fabric skin falling in folds and creases is the map of Nadia's life. It reveals poor nourishment and too many cigarettes, too little money and too much vodka, too much work for too little satisfaction. She loves Nadia, but now, suddenly, Looking at this woman she's known her entire life evokes a terrible fear. Might this be the face of her own future? Nadia must have realised that Galina's thoughts were elsewhere because finally she stops talking. She pours more tea for them both, lights another cigarette, and when she speaks again, her voice is gentle, it's kind. So, Galia, what do you plan to do? I'm still going to emigrate. The words come of their own accord. Nadia stares at her sadness and pity are etched in the crumpled face and suddenly she's apologising. It was wrong of her to have raised the subject of the future. It's far too early to make decisions. Lydia has only just gone. Galia is in a state of shock. Now Galina reaches for Nadia's hands. She holds them gently between her own. Her voice, however, is firm. I'm going to emigrate to Australia. The word fits uneasily in her mouth. She has decided to move to a country whose name has never before passed her lips. <laughs> so she does come to Australia and about two years after, and, and she, she's a very resilient young woman and and resourceful, and stubbornly strong. But about two years after she arrives, she realises that she is really very lonely, and she contacts the Australian. He'd given her his card, and she contacts him. Um, so she meets up with Andrew again, the young mosaicist, and through him she also meets his parents. Now, this is the, the book is set in the mid-'80s. His parents were both born... Leonard, the father, and Sylvie, the mother, were born in the 1930s. So um, Sylvie would be your sort of typical 50s housewife, and Leonard is a businessman. It is a good marriage, but it's a marriage that is based very much on secrets. Okay, so this is basically the novel, how it's, it's set up. The novel is a story of exile, but exile in many forms. Exile from country, exile from your own true nature, which would fit very much with Leonard, exile from your potential, which would fit with Sylvie. And for Andrew, who is a deeply, profoundly shy young man... There's a sense of exile from the sort of social community that we all take for granted. Now, I'm a novelist and I like making things up. I've always liked making things up. I liked making things up even before I became a novelist, actually. Um, It meant that I was never bored. I'm not talking lies. I'm talking about making things up, making up Lives and fantasies and, and all of those sorts of things. But as a novelist, I can do it as a job. So all of my characters are made up and their situations are made up. And the, the trajectory that they take during the, the course of a novel, that too is made up. What is not made up are the themes that are canvassed. In my novels. My novels are described as novels of characters. The, the story attaches to the people. There's not a plot like you would find in um, detective fiction, but there is story with the people and one hopes that you, know, you get to care about the people and you want to know what happens to them. Um, the stories also will canvas certain themes and with this particular novel, Um, the major theme is one of exile. And the themes that I do canvas through my novels, through story, um, are the only autobiographical part. So, for example, with The Memory Trap, the novel that came before this particular one, um, it did explore memory. Memory in all its complexities, but it's done through story, through through character. It's revealed through story and character. For that novel, I was very, very interested in the nature of memory and how solid memory can be and how fleeting it is and how changeable. And with this novel, it was Exile. The novel began in 2012-2013 when um, Australia had just reintroduced um Offshore processing. There was much talk about, you know, the Pacific solution. I mean, what a euphemism that was. There was nothing Pacific, peaceful about the solution. And there was much talk about queues and and lines. I mean, if your life's under threat, who's going to stand in a queue? I mean, it's just ridiculous. The thing that distressed me, and I think distressed so many of us, is was the lack of understanding of what it was to voluntarily go into exile, that nobody chooses exile, that exile is the option when choice has run out. And nobody... That was the other thing, that you know... I couldn't believe that anybody would think that terrorists would come in on leaky boats, terrorists come in on business class tickets, on, on aeroplanes, obviously. So I just simply couldn't understand what seemed so self-evident to me and my friends um, was not evident to everybody else and that our government, of course, was trading on um, fake fears. Well, developing fears, but based on um, yeah, fake information. So I wanted to write a novel about, that looked at exile. I mean, the lovely thing about writing novels is that you have four years to dive deep into something. So, of course, I want it to be something that I want to understand better. At the same time, I was reading about Putin. And you can't understand Putin's Russia without going back to the Soviet years. And you can't understand... The soviet years without going back to the, the czars before that so there was this mix of russia and exile and i recalled how in the late 70s up to the breakup of the soviet union the soviet jews <laughs> were allowed to leave and how in australia we welcomed those um, exiles um, and absorb them into our you know, our, our communities. Um, and how very different it was then, our understanding of people who were oppressed and our willingness to open our doors to them. And before that, of course, the same thing happened with the Vietnamese, with good, strong political leadership. So I decided... ...that um, I would set my novel of exile back in the 1980s. And it's also... ...it happened that there was an advantage that I hadn't realised. That when you set something in the past... ...we always talk about how the future throws a light on the past. But, you know, the past also gets us to look at our present times differently... And I don't think I realise just how profound that can be. So um, I said it in 1985. But my idea was that that sense of being an outsider, of being misunderstood, of struggling in a strange place, is actually common to us all. And so that's the reason why I had my very shy Andrew... Um, in exile, as it were, from the social community. Sylvie, who was the brightest in her family, she came top of her high school, but there was never any question that she was going to be sent to university because she was a girl and girls got married um and it would be a waste of money and particularly a pretty girl it would be really really a waste of money so sylvie marries leonard at the age of 19 and it's a good marriage and she makes the most of it and she keeps a beautiful house and she does good works and she makes aprons and she cooks cakes and she drives for the blind and she does all of that but The life is quite small for somebody who's got um, a very, very fertile brain, which she does. Anyway, what she does is she expands the very narrow confines of her life by collecting letters, letters of strangers. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But the idea was that through this novel, this family, and what happens to them all, that the idea of exile could be, as it were, stretched out beyond just exile from country. It was an interesting, um, it's always interesting to write novels and actually sort of slip under the skin of characters that are not yourself. I mean, build these characters that are not yourself. But to see the familiar, strange, and there's... This is a very, very Melbourne novel. Um, It's so Melbourne that even the Sydney people have enjoyed it. (laughs) It's like visiting a foreign country for them. But it is a very, very Melbourne novel. And um, I tend to write about this part um, of... um, of of Melbourne. Um, It was several books ago that I actually borrowed the stable at the back of John's house. This time I've left your house alone, but I borrowed somebody else's place up the lane from um, near, near near the cemetery. So, I mean, Melbourne people will it's lovely to identify the familiar. So Galena's here. She's managing, but it's not not easy. From birth to death in the Soviet Union, you knew exactly who you were and how you slotted into the system. Complex processes were simplified and streamlined. There was little need to think for yourself and no rewards if you did. She found the contradictions of Australian life confusing and the flexibility they demanded of her, stressful. While she knew this was all part of the West's freedoms, she was coming to see that freedom was not the safe, happy-go-lucky state she'd assumed it would be. And there was something else, something unexpected and unnerving. With so much freedom, it was easy to feel that no one was looking after you. Nothing was simple, nothing was clear, nothing was easy. She read about Australia's history and geography, its flora and fauna, the Great Barrier Reef, the Aboriginal people. She even read books about Australian cricket and football. So many books, but what she really needed was a manual on how to be an Australian. Exile, it seemed to her, was a juggling act between past and present, remembering and forgetting. And her emigration was a form of exile, given she was forbidden ever to return. This loss of place was hard enough, but the way in which exile divided her mind was even worse. She needed her past, but not so much of it that it would sabotage her new life. Was this the condition of exile? To want too much of memory while at the same time trying to control it? When it concerned her mother, she wanted to remember everything except the last illness. As for the rest, she tried to remember particular people, particular places, particular experiences. Demanding of memory, yet restricting it, she was really satisfied. And there were the black holes deliberately created in order to manage her new life, but which at the same time stifled crucial aspects of who she was. That more people did not collapse under the burden of exile was remarkable. There was one prominent overlap between Australia and the Soviet Union that she found very amusing. The British Queen Elizabeth was as ubiquitous here as Lennon was at home. The Queen's image was on all the coins, it graced a good many of the stamps, it hung in public buildings, it appeared in churches and schools. Queen Elizabeth here, Lennon at home. The plenitude of Lenin ensured that all Soviet citizens were caught in his aura in the Soviet ideological web. So what might the omnipresent Queen reveal about the Australians? One of the things when you write novels, novels like mine, is that, um, I mean, I, I don't start with a plan. I start with an idea and then the idea starts to spawn ideas for characters and I sort of write my way in and... It was an interesting thing with this particular novel. When I when I'm finished, which is you know many 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 drafts down down the track, I give the book. I think I've finished, but I might have some darts, and I give it to four people to read, and there'll be four different readers and different readers for different books. Um, I then um, I then interview them. I like to be in control. <laughs> um, I don't want them to turn into experts. <laughs> I know what I need to know. So I interview them in terms of, you know, I'll say things like, you know, which characters did you like best? Which ones pulled? Were, were, were there parts of the book where you thought, oh, bugger it, get on with it, I'm so bored? If I'm wanting to know whether the themes are well well-bedded in in the novel, then I'll ask questions about that too. Anyway, um, I was really surprised that Sylvie, of whom I was quite fond, I mean, in fact, I I like them all, but Sylvie in particular I did, none of my four readers nominated her as a favourite or as even someone that they were interested in. And I actually realised, this was this had never happened to me before, um, that here I was, you know, 20 drafts in and ready to send the book out, and I realised that I knew a lot more about Sylvie than I had put in the novel. And I went back and um, I wrote a whole new scene, two, two new scenes, in fact, um, which were Sylvie's scenes. And I have to say now that she um, most often is the reader's favourite character. So it was the right thing to do. And I have to say, she's one of mine too, and that's the reason why I'm going to come back to her. But before I do so, um, I thought I'd talk just a little bit about the title, Um, Invented Lives. Isn't it a pretty book? I can say that because I had nothing to do with it. Well, I said I thought it was beautiful, Um, but I don't do the visuals you like it. During the writing of this book, the title was The Science of Departures. Um, The great Russian poet, Ossip Mandelstam, wrote a poem, um, wrote many poems, and, and the line is drawn from one of his, I have studied the science of departures. It was the right title to take me through the writing of the book, but I always knew that it, 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 probably didn't have legs. I mean, one of the reasons is that I can't say it properly because of my slushy S's, but, um, it's not the sort of title that, um, publishers would like. Um, so I, um, I came up with several and, um, I have to say that one of the people who was, no, in fact, probably the person who was most helpful was our favorite bookseller, Mark, Mark Rubo. I sent the six titles to him as well as to my publisher and um, this was the one I liked, um, Invented Lives, and fortunately so did Mark and um, so did my publisher. But it's right, I realise, for this book. We all have... We're we're different depending on who we're with. We're different with family, with work colleagues, with friends, with children and so on. Um, The wonderful thing about fiction and the sort of fiction I write. I write third person, but it's like you get inside the head of characters in the way that you would with first person, but third person's much much more powerful to manage. Um, So we'll see someone like Andrew, very, very shy Andrew, early on in the book. He's giving a lecture, and he's doing it beautifully, And everybody thinks that he's just doing this, like, as easy as can be. But because um, we, the reader, can actually enter his thoughts, we know how this poor, shy man is actually suffering and what it's costing him. And similarly with Sylvie, yes, you know, she runs a perfect home and she's got perfect food and perfect everything. But we also know um, what her longings and her yearnings actually are. And she does follow them up, I have to say. Um, and the same thing about Leonard. Leonard has always... he's a um, He's got the soul of a poet and he's a businessman. Um, he's always lived a um, parallel life. And we, the reader, know before most other people in the novel... Um, what he's actually going through, so invented lives—they all invent public persona, personae—and um, we, the reader, because of the—I mean—because of what fiction can do, we know about these invented lives. So it was—it was the right title, I think. Even though I—I do—I do maintain a certain fondness for the science of departures. Okay. Um, I mentioned before about the um, surprises of setting, um, of learning about um, the gains that can be made by setting a novel in the past. And there was an additional thing that um, we... It's very, very hard to critically evaluate your own times, that you're complicit, we're all complicit in how things are here. Yes, of course, you can disagree with government policies, but in a sense, you know, we do live here and we most of us live very comfortable lives, that there is this sense of complicity and it it is hard to criticise things that you value, a place that you value, much, much easier to be critical about times past much easier. It really, really frees you up. And I've done a number of... The book's been out six months now, and um, I've done a number of book clubs, and it's been so interesting to me to see how, oh, how eloquent and critical um, people are um, by... Yes, drawing on what we did back then, and actually relating it to now, and you know, I've done I've done book clubs in very very conservative areas, so it's been quite a been quite an interesting thing for me. But I, I do believe absolutely in the power of fiction. I do. I want to read about um, Sylvie and her letters, but. Um, It'd be nice to break it up. Um, does, do, are there any questions apart from Bernard? Why a mosaicist of all professions? The, the jobs that my characters do are very, very important to me. I, I, I do believe that work does inform identity and, of course, where it comes from identity, it's, it, it's both, but I think it's very, very much attached to identity. At the moment, I'm... Um, I'm developing the characters for my next novel and I'm struggling, really struggling with one of the characters who's gone from... Wait, (laughs) she's 27 and she's gone from a cheesemaker to um, a beekeeper. That lasted for about three hours, the beekeeper, Um, to a PhD student um, who's doing a thesis on um, the Faust legend. That one's been around for quite a long time. Um, Then I decided she was going to be a primary teacher but I then talked to a friend of mine who's a primary teacher and she told me what was involved with being a primary teacher now and that wasn't going to work. And then I thought a secondary teacher and then Eliza. Two things happened. There was an article about libraries in the weekend um, age magazine and I was coming here tonight and I thought no I know what she is she's a librarian (laughs) and um, for 24 hours which is a hell of a lot longer than the beekeeper um, she has been a librarian and I made some notes today and I think it's actually going to work and The reason why I think it's going to work is because there was a certain narrative line that I wanted to use and that's going to fit, but also the type of person that I wanted her to be in this novel, I think it's going to work. So, to get back to your question, why a mosaicist? I knew he was going to be shy, um, so I decided that I would give him um, work in the arts a number of people know that my second string is is um, music and, and I've had musicians in a couple of novels and, and it's something I know a lot about. But no, didn't want to do music. Um, I've always been fascinated with mosaic. There are some fabulous mosaics in this city, in, in fact, in this country. When I've travelled, I've always looked at mosaics and so I thought, oh. I'll have to study mosaics for four years and go to wonderful places like um, St. Petersburg. And that's the reason why. But also, I love... I, mean, I just—it It is amazing. Little fragments that make up a coherent whole. I just love it. I went and did a um, mosaic class, just one, so I got the feel of it and, and, and heard the noise and the breaking of, of, of the tiles and the glue and all of that, did all that, but um, it just meant that I had to look at a lot of mosaics. And um, it was right for him, and it was very interesting for me. As you build the characters, is there a point where you bring them all together? The characters... Ha- ha- if, if you're writing novels of characterization, the question is, I mean, how do you bring them all together? There is the world of the novel, and what happens is that you'll start with one character... Um, and with it, with this book, it was Galena. And um, characters like people insist on meeting other people. And then other people are married to other people and they have children. And, they, and And so it builds. But all of them have to justify their existence and what they do within the novel, within the novel as a whole. How do you feel about the dislikable characters you've created? They're really interesting. Um, um, My characters are all flawed. I can like them, but they're flawed. And, in fact, it's the... I've always said Mother Teresa would make a shocking character for a novel. Absolutely. You you want flawed people. And these are all really flawed. They do some naughty things. They All of them do. Um, I... um, in my last novel, the one before this one, um, The Memory Trap, there was a character, Ramsey, who was a really nasty, awful, narcissistic, talented, fabulous musician. He was a, he was a, um, a, a genius at the piano and he was just pathetic at everything else. And he made people's life. A misery. But this is what novels can do. Um, we, the reader, got an insight into what went on in um, Ramsay's world in a way that other people didn't have that insight at all. So you don't have to like characters, but you've got to find them interesting. And he was not likable, but he was interesting. And there was another character um in the no, in that in that novel, Elliot, um, who was just a shit to his wife. Absolute shit. But again, fiction enabled the uh, the novel enabled the reader to understand more than perhaps the characters did. And as I said, he was interesting. He wasn't likable, but he was interesting. And that's what you want. And it's the same thing with movies, too, that, you know, you, you, the, the, the charming evil person, you know, they, they're often the most compelling. I'll, I'll read about um, Sylvie and her letters. Um, I love letters, and I think that we've lost a lot by not writing letters anymore, and people have written me letters um, as a result of this book, which has been lovely. So in this particular section, Andrew brings Galena to his parents' house for dinner. It's the first time they've met. And um, Leonard has—he's very proud of his wife and... And, 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 they've, they've been having a conversation and, and, and she brushes something off as saying, you know, she's just a housewife. And Leonard said, Oh, no, you're not. He said, You collect letters. And he said, and he refers to one particular letter in her collection. She's got a collection of 200 letters, um, that's in Russian. And he said, Why don't you show it to Galena? So it happened that a couple of minutes later, Sylvie was making her way towards her little workroom at the top of the house with the Russian girl following to show what had been seen by no one except Leonard and even with him it was just the occasional interesting acquisition like the Russian letter. She shared, Sylvie shared the twin desires common to all collectors of wanting her collection to be admired but at the same time feeling compelled to protect it. And not just the collection, but the passion of the collector too. The naked heart, after all, from people who were damaged by indifference or derision or outright contempt. And what would this girl think of her letter collection? This girl from a culture so foreign it was impossible to assume or predict anything, who might well fade out of Andrew's life before long, although she hoped this wouldn't be be the case. What to think about this stranger now following her up the stairs to her room. Her collection had started by accident. Perhaps most collections do. She'd found her first letter pressed between the pages of a second-hand book she had bought during her third pregnancy. This was her Latin pregnancy, Latin poetry in translation to distract her from her hopes and fears, The first pregnancy was all joy until the miscarriage. The second pregnancy was a Henry James one, with only two of his shorter novels finished before the miscarriage occurred. She'd enjoyed Latin at school, and Virgil, in particular, seemed the right sort of guide and protector for this new pregnancy. As it happened, the second-hand book that yielded her first letter was not Virgil, but a collection of Propertius's love poems, a beautiful old book with a spongy maroon leather cover and gold-rimmed pages. The letter marked a poem called Gone, a short poem that began, The girl I loved has left me. Two lines of the poem had been marked in pencil. Love's king of yesterday becomes by fate tomorrow's fool. That is the way of love, i.e. we come to our senses too late. The letter was dated October the 23rd, 1926, and had been written to my darling by forever your Edward, But he wasn't forever her Edward, because according to the letter, he would not be seeing my darling again. He wrote that he could deceive his wife no longer, and while it broke his heart never never more to see and hold and hear my darling, he felt he had no alternative. There was not only his wife to consider, a good woman who'd done nothing to deserve his disloyalty, but there were also his three children and his ageing mother. My darling must have doubted his sincerity given where she'd kept the letter and the lines of the poem she'd highlighted, but Sylvie had no doubts. She thought Forever Your Edward came across as a self-justifying, self-pitying cheat. She guessed that my darling was not his first indiscretion, nor would she be his last. In fact, he was probably dismissing my darling not to make amends with his family, but to make way for my darling's replacement.' He would have been found out, of that Sylvie was sure, and he would have ended up paying for his lies and deceits. A single letter, and she'd become psychologist, priest, and storyteller all at once. A single letter, and she was captivated. She'd always been drawn to letters, not just the pleasure of receiving them, but the concept of letter writing, that very particular, intimate, secret, and enduring communication. And she thrilled to the covertness of letters, like someone whispering in your ear, your ear, and no one else's. As exciting as that first letter had been, it would have gone no further if she and Leonard had not decided to replace the flooring in the kitchen. She was pregnant again and reading Virginia Woolf. It was more auspicious, she thought, to read a female author during pregnancy, although perhaps better to have chosen one with children. The plan was to finish the flooring well before the baby arrived. The old lino was the same grey-green monotony that covered so many floors in the 1940s and 1950s. The new lino was very striking. A black background with bright rectangles in primary colours forming interlocking squares. Striking and, compared with other kitchen floors she'd seen, rather daring. The work began with the removal of the old flooring. The underlay comprised the usual newspapers, not from the 1940s or 50s, but the 1930s. During the short period, just a couple of hours before the papers were removed, Sylvie cr- crouched down and read the floor. The top layer was mustardy with age and stained with mysterious splotches, but the lower sheets were well preserved. She was shuffling through the pages, reading headlines and paragraphs, when she spied some handwriting almost completely covered by a page of newsprint. She moved the newspaper aside to reveal a letter written on blue onion skin paper. She scanned the contents, then, knowing the flora would soon be returning, quickly lifted and stacked all the sheets of newspaper. She found several more letters, some like the first written on blue onion skin paper, others covering both sides of high quality, no longer white parchment, but if she held the pages up to the light, she could still make out the watermark. By the time the flora returned to remove the underlay, she'd completed the job old papers arranged in neat stacks for him to take to the incinerator while she took possession of the letters. She lost the baby and began the letter collection. And she did not stop, not even with the pregnancy that produced the miracle of Andrew, the George Eliot pregnancy and another female author like Virginia Woolf without children, as were the Brontes and Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson, Someone with the education and the ability should investigate this disturbing pattern, Sylvie thought. As her son grew, so did her collection. Now, after nearly 30 years, she had over 200 letters, all in English except the single Russian letter with the 1951 stamp of the Happy Lemon Pickers. For the first time, she wished she'd not collected that letter or rather had not shown it to Leonard. Her letters a subtle larceny that did no one any harm were her own business. Posted on the wall in her room was a quote from the poet Byron. Letter writing is the only device for combining solitude with good company. The observation greatly appealed to her, even more so with her extension. Reading a letter is the only device for combining solitude with good company. So what was she now doing? "'traipsing up to her room with this girl in tow. "'She stopped on the narrow stair. "'She couldn't go through with it. "'She twisted around and looked down at Galena. "'Her expression must have said it all, "'for Galena reached up and placed her hand "'on the bare skin of her wrist. "'Perhaps another time,' the girl said. "'She turned and led the way back down the stairs "'into the body of the house, and Sylvie followed. "'The print of Galena's hand.' sparking on her skin an understanding had passed between them. And in fact Galena has an effect on all of the morrows and it's it's that old device of bringing a stranger into a mix uh, into a, 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 a an established um, environment and um, and everybody is changed because of her. That was an
0: edited recording of Andrea Goldsmith discussing her latest novel, Invented Lives. You can find Invented Lives on our ebook platform, Cloud Library, as well as in Branch when we're able to open to you again. If you enjoyed this conversation, please have a look at the other great interviews available through our podcast, or book in for one of our online author talks. There's one with Luke Horton, who will be discussing his debut novel, The Fogging, on August 20th, presented in partnership with Cillia Darlings. In the meantime, since going out, or what we would have previously called having a life, is canceled right now, perhaps this is the perfect time for some invented lives? In the invented life I'm reading, I'm a skillful assassin earning my freedom through an increasingly dangerous competition to be the king's champion. In reality, I'm gonna go make another coffee. Happy reading.